I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. We didn't even get to Doctor Who. I'm literally re-watching the whole... Ah! Watching oh, the whole new episode. Have me back. We'll do Doctor Who and Science Fiction. It'll be cool. Yeah, I'm trying to convince some of my friends that Tom because they all came with, with the new ones, and I love the new yeah, ones. I love Jody yeah, Whitaker. I'm like Tom Baker's the guy I grew up with. Like he'll always be my favorite Doctor. <laughs> give them a list. Just if you give them a really careful list and start them on City of Death, it, it works out all right. <laughs> well, you have That's a great. It. That's a terrible time to leave the podcast. I know that was done in 1977. <laughs> <laughs> But that's when everything good happened. Good day, good people. My name is Brad King, and you are listening to the Downtown Writers Jam Podcast, which is part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. We are coming to you from deep inside the jam bunker today. As the days of summer come to an end, school is starting back up here at Carnegie Mellon, which means my job is ramping up. Uh, for everybody who's got kids going back to school, I hope you're doing okay. And I hope you're all doing okay. Um, this is just a crazy ass time of year for a lot of folks. So if you've listened to the program, you know that, uh, I have been actively trying to get more romance and rom-com writers on the show. And today Jenny Colgan is here. Uh, she's been writing romantic fiction since 1999. Her first book sold at auction throughout the world, which is crazy. Uh, won all kinds of awards. 
26 languages you've been translated into. Uh, hit the New York Times bestseller list for the first time with a Christmas bookshop last year. And that's going to be published uh, in paperback this October. She, like I said, she is uh, over in Scotland. She's married, three children, lives in a castle on the east coast of Scotland. Her book, An Island Wedding, is out right now. She's fucking delightful. She's delightful. And it was such a fun conversation. One of the, you'll hear it right at the beginning. Uh, there's going to be some talk of Elvis and castles. And if you have listened to the program at all, or if you're just listening for the first time and you hear my accent, the way you think Elvis and castles are going to show up is not the way it's going to happen. This is why I love this show. Weird shit happens all the time. And particularly when you get writers from small towns, because <laughs> if you're from a small town, she's from a town of about 12,000. I'm from a town of about five. Uh, there's always weird things. There's always weird things. It's the first thing I ask people when they're from a small town. What's your town? Like, what's the thing your town has? Because everybody's town's got a thing. But I promise you we'll also get to her books. Uh, and she is just fun and funny and smart and witty. And I, this is one of those that, like, the hour ended and I was very, very sad. And I think you will be, too. Before we get to the show, you know, we got the three shows. We got the Jam, which is our long-form show. And then we have Jam Sessions, which is our nonfiction show. And After Party, which is that weird Q&A we do. All of those are on this channel. A couple things you can do to help us out. Tell your friends about us. Got people that like books in your life. Tell them about us. Leave us a review over at Apple Podcasts or over at the Writer's Jam Facebook page under Reviews. Uh, we got a website with all kind of stuff, newsletter, book reviews, all that thing. You can support the entire Solid Listen Podcast Network through our Patreon. If you're at our website, you can click on that or you can go to the Solid Listen Podcast website for just a couple bucks a month. Get all kinds of bonus content and things like that. Mostly, though, I appreciate the fact that you've taken a little time to spend an hour with us. And, uh, you know, in these times, it didn't make the show, but I've, I talk about it all the time. With all the crazy shit going on, apparently polio's back. Uh, Monkeypox, which I didn't even know was a thing. That's here. Still trying to deal with coronavirus. All that stuff. I have found myself gravitating to rom-coms and romance and escapist fun. And part of the reason that I wanted to have more writers like that on the show is one, you know, I, I don't stratify literature. There's not, well, this is real literature and this is not literature. Like that's, that's not how I look at it. And I don't think most writers look at it that way. Storytelling is really hard and engaging your audience in a story and creating characters in a world is just, it's fucking hard. No matter whether it's fiction, nonfiction, poetry on the screen, on the stage, improv, and we don't talk about that enough. And over the next few weeks, I have some guests who, they're not all romance and rom-com writers, but there's a joy to the stories, right? There's a joy to them. And we oftentimes forget that in literature and in stories, happiness doesn't mean boring. And that just because there's a goodness doesn't mean there's not a depth to storytelling. 
And I thought it was really important on this show to begin to talk about that, to bring people on to do that kind of stuff, because uh, it's true. So I appreciate you indulging me. I appreciate you spending the last few days of your summer with us. And I hope you will sit back and enjoy my absolutely delightful conversation with Jenny Cole. From the west coast, uh, in from a very small town called Prestwick, uh, which is famous for precisely one reason, which is it is the only time Elvis set foot uh, on British soil. When he was, we have an air, uh, we have an airport, a small excuse for an airport. We have a shed, and he was on his way to Germany, and he touched down in Prestwick, uh, and everywhere in Prestwick, it's a very small town. Every single uh, business is called Graceland's, or you know, there's like. Elvis puns on the hairdressers. It's, it's like a massive Elvis town. There's a huge uh, kind of American music uh, thing that you have on an air show. And um, yeah, so there you go. So that's, that's our, the claim to fame of, of the town that I came from. Is it's that's, that's so bizarre that just that moment turned it into a thing. It's our thing. Every town has got a thing. And yeah, <laughs> particularly small. Like how when you say small, how small was your town? About twelve thousand people. Yeah, mine mine was like five, and it's like yeah. they they get that one thing, and that's the thing that they do. What was your thing? Uh, we have a uh, there was a, a British guy who moved over, and he built a castle by hand in my town. Ooh, yeah, Ooh, that's a good thing. Okay. Yeah, so the yeah. Loveland Castle is like a place that people come. To, and he lived there until he died in a fire. Like he lived in this castle in this small rural town. Until the, all the boiling oil happened. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't even yeah. know how it happened, but there was a fire and he was like 89 or something and died in it. And now it's like a historical landmark. There you go. Yeah. So you got Elvis and we got the castles, which is not how oh, yeah, you would expect that to be. Pretty good Scotland American sport <laughs> <Yeah>. right there. <laughs> uh, so did you have brothers and sisters growing up or was it just you? Yep. No, I've got two brothers, one of whom is now in uh, Korea working for a major car manufacturer. But he's just been over for the summer and that's lovely because I hadn't seen him for like three years. Obviously, no one's seen anyone. Right. And of course, all our children had turned from children into great big kind of hulking adults (laughs) eating around the place. And then my younger brother runs a chain of KFCs. So you can guess which one is the very popular uncle. (laughs) <laughs> are they is he over there uh, no no dominic's still here in he's scotland yeah yeah so I, you... I, I remember if he's round, if one is one of his restaurants is near the flat and from time to time he will arrive like you know santa claus <laughs> well, slightly different red and white and uh I, I think a friend of my daughter's was here one time and her eyes were just like oh my god <laughs> like this happened like every day <laughs> <laughs> that's funny what's the age difference with you guys uh, there's about a year and a half in between each of us so wow so you were you guys close because that's close enough that you're sort of around each other a lot very much well dominic was adopted so he didn't come till he was about one and a half so we i remember him coming robin doesn't um so yeah, we had Robin in the middle. He's very easy. I was at the top, very bossy, and Dominic was at the bottom, just getting kicked around like a football by <laughs> cross. Very, do you know? And the funniest thing is, I have completely and accidentally, I have two boys and a girl, or kind of 
and uh, I've completely replicated the family <laughs> dynamic completely by accident. I thought, oh, I have lots of little girls. We'll have to, there's no, there's no girls in my family, so it's all boys. And um, sure enough, they're stealthy and kicking the boys around. And there's my middle child, Francis, kind of smoothly bomb, you know, in, in the center of this sandwich. So, but I think that's how it happens, right? Like, you do what you saw. It's just the weirdest thing that how children pinball off each other and how clearly it first you see it all the time I've got a friend where one child is quite tricky for various reasons and the other child is completely angelic and you think well if you hadn't had to be the opposite of the tricky child you know the amazing effect it has on you and I'm really close with my siblings and I'm really happy that I have them and that we get to share each other's lives and um but it's, it never, I just kind of assumed before I had children that you would have a child and it would be like this or it would be like that. And actually the, the formation of them in relation to each other is far more interesting. Yeah. I've got, um, of the two boys, one is like basketball player tall. He's like two meters tall. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, sorry, six feet. No, I don't yeah. have to translate. You don't have to do that. Yeah, yeah. We, know what, we know what a meter is here. I know he's six foot seven inches tall, and the the the, the second boy was just, wow. and we were like, look, well, this is a kind of throwback gene. I'm not very tall, you know. You're going to be nice and tall, but you're not going to be, you know, can't get into an airline seat. <laughs> and that he's he's just turned fifteen, and I think he's inching out. He's actually going beyond what we expected. I can see how excited <laughs> it makes him. You know, he always had quite a high voice, and then Wallace kind of broke into like James Earl Jones, you know. <laughs> And the second one was so anxious that his voice would break. It's it's lovely. It's nice to watch. That's funny. Yeah, it's I think having brothers and sisters, too, as you get older, even if you weren't close when you were younger, when you get older, it's nice to have other people that were there. To oh, life. my goodness. I just I've got friends that just they had they only wanted one and then they kind of had another one. I think I think it's very hard when you start to lose your parents to not have anyone to share yeah. that very precise that's it then it's gone you know and yeah. you've got your cousins but it's not quite you know and I'm close with all my cousins well I'm not close with all my cousins I've got about 170 uh, but uh, you know you just yeah I think I like really that you just dropped the 170 in there like that's not a thing like there's like well, yeah, it's just I, I have an uncount my parents were each one of seven and each yeah. of them had you know it's one of those as I went to St. Ives kind of thing yeah. So um, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's, there's a lot of us. We're probably cousins, Brad. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have the same thing. My family for generations had seven to ten kids. And yeah, there's a Facebook group with the thousands of us from all really? over the country. You know, I don't yeah. know most of them, but it's I don't know if it's like this in your family, but if I just show up, which I have to places and like knock on the door, I'm like, I'm Virgie Baker's grandson yeah and that's yeah. like that's enough that's, you, yeah you're in you're in the family and let's do this oh that's lovely well no i have my one of my canadian cousins coming on saturday and i have not seen her since i was 19 years old yeah she's like we're coming to scotland i'm like great okay get us on <laughs> yeah yeah there's a place here to stay like i'm gonna be offended if you don't like uh we'll have dinner and okay. uh yeah always always gonna be a place do you have this uh, we have family names that go back 500 years. Like John, which is my first name, is a family name. And like, if you have a son, John is expected to be a name that you give. 
the reason we call my second son, well, he's called Michael Francis, was because the sheer bulk of Michael's was weighing intolerably on everyone yeah. and everyone now has something to go to indicate which Michael that they are and I just and because he was the latest he became baby Michael and I thought that kind of thing will stick with you forever he forever 56 turning yeah. up at a thing they'll be like oh no baby Michael and I was like I'm not having it and so we hyphen we were living in France where hyphenated names are very common so he's Michael Francis yeah and then he was quite a slow child and it took him the whole morning to write Michael Francis <laughs> on a piece of paper and so his teacher came to us and she said oh c'est pas bon uh, he has to choose and um, so he's Francis which I think but yeah we had to break the chain it was unsustainable well there's literally five you know Michaels that we see excuse me yeah in my I, we live behind my uncle my dad's name is John I'm John my uncle's name is John his kid is yeah. John so yeah. it's it's Barry, Chip, Junior, and Brad. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Because my parents the Americans, you never tell. <laughs> yeah. Well, and they didn't want Big John and Little John, right? They're like, this is not some Robin Hood shit. Like I, they didn't exactly. want me being little John. <laughs> I'm not a baby. It was baby Mike when he was such a beautiful baby. I'm like, I'm not, this is not hanging yeah. over you yeah. forever. <laughs> so what were you like as a kid? I was like everyone else you've ever had on this show, Brad. No one ever saw me down from the forehead down because I had a book in front of it. And every that's time not, someone that's tried not to always get, the case here. Oh, no, so I you were a reader. It. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's that was just we had a library, and my mother, like my, my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, did not learn to read, uh, and he left school at uh, eleven. They couldn't read, and then my mother had taught him, and she was very absolutely weird I am not having seven kids I am not living in two you know she was very very ambitious that that was not going to happen <laughs> and so she, we were up and down to the library all the time uh we didn't have books in the house we weren't kind of, uh, she qualified as a teacher um and she just kept me not quite sad. you could only take four books out a week from the library which if you're a heavy reader a particularly heavy child reader is nowhere near enough do you know it's funny i'm not a big comic book reader not because i don't love comic books i love comic books but they go too fast to this day a 700 page book is perfect for me and there's no you can't write a book too long for me i am very happy with long books because it always meant that i would have something to read in you know in an emergency and a kindle actually has been a real gift to me i know not everybody likes and i love mine because you know, as long as it's charged, yeah. nothing, nothing bad is going to happen because I have 1000 books uh, sitting on it. Anyway. And it's I don't generally, you know, I have hardbacks like those hardbacks behind me are everybody I've interviewed on the program. Oh, but if I travel, that Kindle goes with me because I can uh, put 10 books on there and I'm like, I'm not toting around because I'll tote around books. Yeah, I, I've, I've realized that I treat the way I treat my Kindle is very much like the way I used to treat the little stuffed Snoopy plush toy I had when I was a child. If it's not under my pillow when I go to sleep, I get really, I can't yeah. really go to sleep. It's There's a word in French called doudou, and it, it doesn't just mean a soft toy. It means a very specific toy or piece of cloth that a child can't put down. And, and I think my Kindle is a bit like my doudou. I just can't. And honestly it's the only thing i own that if one breaks and i'm on about kindle 11 
if one breaks, I have to re- I have to replace it immediately. And that's not the kind of person I am at all. Yeah, but, that's your fire thing. If fire starts, like I'm getting that thing. Oh yeah, that, yeah, that's what I'm rescuing. Like I'll come back for the kids later, but the books are exactly. going first. <laughs> now, if it takes the fire brigade a while to come, I've got something to read. Up right, <laughs> I'll be stressed out, so I need to read and not be thinking about that stuff. Uh. So you were like, so what were you like in school? Like, were you, were you like a studious kid doing stuff or like the first is usually oh, a rule follower. They, they, yeah. But also if you're a teacher's kid and actually then my father who had been a, a typewriter fixer, he's got a great nose for the future, my dad. So he'd started out as a typewriter repair man. And then he met my mother who was a force of nature and she made him go to teaching college, uh, which didn't particularly like being a teacher. But um, so I was the child of two teachers and also I was the child of two Catholic teachers. And in (laughs) our area of Scotland, it's not unlike Northern Ireland, it's sectarian. You go to a Catholic school or a Protestant school and you socialize with Catholics. They're Protestants. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying that. Yeah. yeah. Um, So basically, like all teachers, kids, my mother taught primary, my father taught secondary. You're getting away with nothing. Wow. So I mean, the whole like you had them the whole way through. They had both ends covered could not cough in the street oh and add that to a small town and add that to the fact that I was the famous girl that never left the library (laughs) now let me ask did your brother suffer the same fate or was that specific to you uh no Robin my middle brother was pretty mild and easygoing and he's very musical and so he was always kind of you know up at church and doing concerts and things and then Dominic was just like I am having none of this uh, you know, I'm getting into trouble and I'm getting to, into trouble now. Of course, the, the the way of small towns means that all the policemen had been taught by both of my parents. So they were very good at going, trying to come and get your kid out of this trouble they just got into. So um, he was, I mean, it was very, I think it was very mild, but um, yeah, the, the, the naughtiness has got to come out. Yeah, uh, I'm the youngest. Uh, and uh, I, re- I, yeah, I relate to Dominic. Murder. Yeah. <laughs> Hundred percent didn't was like yeah oh these rules God. seem to not be for me. Uh, what do you know? It's so weird. Are you how many children do you have? I don't have any children. Um, All right, okay. But I was the youngest of there are two, but I have a half sister who's older, so I'm the youngest of three kids, and I was almost the youngest in the whole cousin clan. So like, oh my God. when the yeah when the family showed up, who was the star of the show? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Stop dancing. Yeah, so rules rules felt silly to me. <laughs> yeah, I I noticed with my my eldest is always complaining about how um, lenient we are on the youngest, and you are because the poor eldest is a test case for everything. And even though he's a teenager, it's like, well, you have to get home at this time from a party, and oh, don't fall off the balcony, and you know, it, it, the poor eldest. Yeah, they're always it's always gonna be stricter because you have no freaking idea what you're doing. Yeah. And you assume that the having no freaking idea what you're doing part is really for babies or you know, toddlers. No, it's not. It's for literally their entire lives. It'll be yeah. for their weddings, it'll be for everything. They are the you know, the tester person. So everything yeah. you're gonna go nuts for. And I think you know, when there's one, all your focus is on that. When there's two, then your attention split. And it's going to be more towards the younger one who need. And then when there's three, so like, I think mm-hmm. that, you know, that by the time it's a third, even you're only getting a third of the attention. Whereas the first one had a laser focus on them for their whole, you know, for most of their young existence. 
<laughs> yes, for positive and negative reasons. Yeah, yeah. Imagine, yeah. Also, the focus and depository of all your worst anxieties and fears. Yeah, but they and, come out in the wash, children. And you know, when you buy by the time you're at that third kid, like you're older, and like I mean, you and I know, like that energy changes. Yeah. That that twenties energy turns into thirties energy, and it ain't the same. <laughs> yeah, it just hose them down for Christmas, really. <laughs> uh, they come out if, 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 whenever people were kind of embarking and just like, you know what, they come out of the wash. If you care enough about your children to worry about this kind of stuff, that's it, you know, that's yeah. fine. Job done. Yeah. You know, that means you love them and everything else is just vegetables and toilet paper. You know, it's interesting to my we are very lucky because we have a lot of space. So we have a big garden and um, we were both at home during the pandemic. So those are two things that made us very different and uh, yeah. a lot down. But, oh my God, children, they're so, they're, they're small C conservative. You know, they like everything to be all the same yeah. every day. They had a magic time. They had a brutal, when we finally, we had, you know, stop and starts with lockdowns in the UK. And when it finally came time to be, to get back to school properly, more or less. And, and my husband's like, you know, it's been hard. It's been a difficult time for everyone. But, you know, to look on the positive, what would you say was, you know, a benefit of, of lockdown? And Franz just kind of went, thought for a second ago, yeah, I'd have to say all of it. <laughs> and Delphi was like, yes, all of it. There's yeah. no swimming classes, no dancing, no rushing about, no getting dragged to see your elderly relatives. Yeah. Just home every day, out on the swing, chat to your mates on your computer, get more screen time than is possibly good for anyone. And um, yeah, they'd blast. And it's good that they had siblings, right? Like, I think it was probably hard on kids that didn't have siblings and couldn't. But if you have a couple kids around and they can socialize, like, they were yeah. like, yeah, we were just, we, they were just getting to the age where we were considering getting rid of the trampoline, but we hadn't got around to it. Boy, <laughs> did our neglectful behavior really help us out there? <laughs> I'm always amazed when, like, just growing up being a Gen Xer, like, if we'd had trampolines, I would have had 400 broken bones. Would you know, it's a funny one because it's constantly in the papers as being like the number one cause of childhood accidents. Um, but the fact is that we don't really let children do anything else. We don't let them play. You know, when I was growing up, the number one uh, level of childhood accidents was drowning in a canal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because we used to let five-year-olds walk out unsupervised. So, you know, it's kind of bad, but <laughs> they got to do something, you know. No, so it's 100% true. Like, that's the joke. Like, it, I think we're in the neighborhood of the same age. Like, in the summer, it was like 8 a.m. Like, get out of the house. And yeah. I will call you at lunch and I'll call you at dinner. Otherwise, I yeah. don't want to see you. And we just were out. <laughs> Wait, we used to, there used to be a, we used to have to watch these public information films about, at school about things that you shouldn't do when you were out for 14 hours yeah. by yourself. Yeah. <laughs> she's like, you know, don't climb electricity grid lines. Like, how high a child could get up before anybody would pay any attention. You know, yeah. get off the railway. Um, to, you know, the sheer amount of stuff that they tried to warn children about before now and now we don't let them do anything no and like i remember I the, a few broken arms off a trampoline oh yeah no 100 but and i you know it's also they have to know like you're gonna live and things happen sometimes right like as long as it's not a bad you know as long as you're not permanently injured like you learn by doing some of that stuff yeah. uh i just know like when i was young we had a pond that froze over and we all took our bikes out there and we're jumping off a hill onto this frozen <laughs> pond, right? And all of us were like, this is the greatest day of our lives. And I went home and it was one of the 
I got spanked that night because they were oh, they were like, what were you thinking? I'm like, well, we tested it with a well, stick and they were like, you're the dumbest person that's ever walked the earth. Oh and gosh. now I'm like, oh, yeah, we could have fallen through that ice and drowned. <laughs> we grew up on the water and there was no once we've been taught to swim. Um, there was no sense that you can just go out and swim in the sea. This is not yeah. sea, by the way. Yeah. Uh, you could just go out or the icy. This is you could just go out and swim on your own. Yeah, I wouldn't let you know. I wouldn't let an eighteen-year-old do that. I wouldn't let anyone do that. You know, it's freezing cold. Oh, yeah. Anyway, we're here, Brad. We're fine. I know yeah. it's amazing. It's amazing. So, uh, so you're not getting away with anything, and uh, you've got parents who are teachers. You're in the library a lot. Like as you get into like high school and that high school age who are you becoming at that point like are, are you just kind of that same kid all the way through high school uh, it's funny because I went to a really scuzzy secondary school now the way it works in Scotland is you start a senior school at 11 and you're there till you're about 17 yeah and then you go off to college um so you're you're, you're very small when you start and the fact my mother's desperate urge to not to, to be more than she came from which was nothing like my grandfather worked in a mill uh, so she was really pushy she made my father buy a house which was a very new thing to, to, to do they got a big mortgage and stuff like that she was always kind of no no we're going to be outwardly mobile I had like they used to trade because my dad was good at fixing things so they trade him fixing stuff for like really bad like piano lessons you know stuff like that she was brilliant and she was a force of nature but it meant by the time I got to secondary school in a depressed area I was considered to be like terribly hoity-toity kind of <laughs> rich person. <laughs> so there was some kind of um, kind of group confusion about that. But um, yeah, I didn't like um, it, it. It was really rough. My senior school. I think by fourth year, which is about fifteen, there was turning sixteen. There was a lot of pregnancy, a lot of prison, you know that kind of thing. So I made some brilliant friends there, and I just sat out till I was 16 and then I went to university so was, you just kind of like tried uh, to ride out the storm oh it was you know fights and shouting and oh god you know it was a lot it's funny it's so funny I send my kids to like the prissiest school you can imagine I just hated it my husband went to a rough school and rough schools are tough on sensitive children my husband isn't particularly sensitive he's an engineer but um yeah, it, it just wasn't, it just wasn't nice. People weren't yeah. nice, you know, they were rough and it wasn't their fault at all. You know, poverty does that, but that it, it was, it, yeah, it was, um, it was nobody's fault. And of course it was back in the late 70s, early, well, it was in the 80s, I went to senior school. Um, you know, they didn't, there wasn't the sense that there is now that, you know, bullying is a problem or right. there are different types of people or or but also that's on that side in terms of what was coming at us but also on the other side from our side there was no we just thought these were bad people we didn't think oh okay well they haven't got a dad and that you know her, the mum's got stepdads coming in and out you know nobody explained that to us either that, that yeah. they, this would make things difficult and therefore if someone was very aggressive they didn't they hadn't learned and been born that way you know yeah so it was much more it was just aggro, really. So yeah, yeah so I so I, I took my exams nice and early and went to and then I lied in the days you could do this kind of thing. I lied on my university application that I was older than I was. And my mum was so excited because I was going to tertiary education, which was a big deal. I think it was the first in the family to go to university. 
and I, I was going to Edinburgh University, which is a really fancy university. And then, so she was cool with that. <laughs> so I turned up. And at Edinburgh, it's got a lot of people who've maybe taken years out to travel and, you know, just that kind of thing. Yeah. So I was, I just had my 17th birthday and everyone else was 19 and had like a trust fund and it was hilarious. Yeah. There's a whole, <laughs> that, and we'll, we're, we're going to get to all that after the break. I want to ask you one quick thing because. I think we were part of the last generation of kids that went through school like you just described, where there was not a recognition that like the tough kids were tough for a reason, right? Oh, and yeah. these kids were this way for a reason. It was just, well, they're like they're bad it's news, so stay mean. away from them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And like yeah. now I will say, yeah, it doesn't excuse people's behavior, but like I feel like there's more discussion and intervention in that, like, hey this is why maybe you're this way and there's help and, and this is why they're this help. way yeah. and like yeah. we need and there to wasn't be help then there was punishment which ended yeah. up in brutalizing the people that needed the most help in the first place yeah and actually i feel bad now because of course you're teenagers so all you can think about is yourself you know thinking oh my god they're calling me names they're being so horrible and actually the, the, there wasn't a shred one and my best friend from there she was from a very liberal kind of cool household and she was much better at it but there wasn't a shred of compassion in me for those people. You know, I was just like, you're horrible. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, now, now I, I would look at things from a much broader perspective and say they were her we mites. That's what they were. Yeah. And like my cousins who were older were like, we're going to teach you to fight. Because, you know, I was uh, a book. I was an athlete, but I was book nerdy. And like my, I, I've told this story, like my nickname was the professor when I was young. And that was not a compliment. Right. Like that was people were not calling me that as a like, he's a smart guy. You know, it was like, fuck you. And so my cousins were like, you're going to have to be able to fight. That was the solution to that. It wasn't like yeah. talk him out of it or let's have a thing. It's like, you're going to have to punch yeah. that guy in the face. Yeah, I know. And like, well, that's why I'm in therapy now. And I'll tell my therapist, like, I didn't really have any trauma. And then I'll tell the story. She's like, yeah, that's that's trauma. Okay, that came. <laughs> I'm like, oh, like you said, as a teenager, that's just sort of your experience. You don't have a worldly experience. You only have the experience in front of you. So, of course, you can't think of other things because your world is the size of your school in your neighborhood. Yeah, that's right. You know, and that's I think that's I think that's changed. I don't I mean, the Internet's largely trash. But like it has, I think, enabled people to find other people like them and to see that like, oh, this world is a little bit bigger than I thought. I think that's right for some kids, but the, the kind of sensitive sided kids. Yes. I think there's constantly horrible statistics about how few people that live in big states, what we would call housing estates, um, big projects have ever been to the other side of town. Yeah, hundred percent. To the, to the beach or the countryside. And that in that lack of geography and the lack of being able to travel, it's such a big gap between being middle class and not being middle class. And yeah. The horizon broadening, and I, I don't know how you fix that, but that doesn't seem to have changed. Physical no. mobility yeah. doesn't seem to have changed much since I was that age. Same in Appalachia. Like, you, mm -hmm. the, you, like you're going to be five miles from where you were born when you die. Like, that's, yeah. like, it's, it yeah. is like a, in the 80% of things, like, People just don't leave yep. um, for a variety of reasons. So on that happy note, we're going to take a break uh, and then we're <laughs> going to come back to college and then we're going to get into like 
how the writing and all that stuff um, came. So we'll be back in just a second. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right. Uh, so when last we left... Um, you had just gone to university. You had lied. And uh, then you got to a place where everybody had trust funds, which I'm sure is an oversimplification of that. So when you show up at university, what's your plan? Or was your plan get out of my town and figure it out? Yeah, yeah. yeah get out of town and figure it out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean to say what I was doing. I do. Writers never retire, but I would like to go back and take my or take an undergraduate degree there. And listen this time. <laughs> it's just, I had a lot to do, you know. I had parties to go to, boys to kiss, and just there was just a lot that I hadn't kind of got around to while I had my head in a book at school. So, and and, and it sounds like not just year. in a book, like you had your head down trying to just survive that time, like the high, the yeah, secondary. Well, no, I don't want to over egg it, you know. Nobody ever flushed my head down a toilet or anything, but yeah, there was a certain amount of kind of. You know, different, and actually, by about people left early, so by the time you got to the last year, too, it kind of quieted down a bit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was it. It was a big deal that I was going, and I got the grades, and um, yeah. What was the plan like? What did you want to do? Like, or when did you figure out, like, hey, maybe I want to do something other than just leave my town? No, I never did. I, I, I loved. There was lots of things I loved. 
And Edinburgh, of course, is a big festival town. So I moved here and, of course, the festival was happening and stand-up comedy was just then at the end of the 80s becoming this massive, massive big deal. Mm -hmm. Saturday Night Live, they used to show from the US, but we had an equivalent called Friday Night Live and it was just becoming Bill Hicks would come and, you know, suddenly that was really amazing and I was really interested in comedy. I got involved in, in theatres. I worked in bars and theatres and box offices and stuff. So that side of life, the very show busy cultural side of Edinburgh, I was very interested in, right away, without being a performer of any kind, but I was just interested. The people were interesting and they were fun. And there was a massive kind of gay subculture, which was just there, just part of life. So you just go, oh, okay, that's what, what it's like. And it was just brilliant. It was brilliant. I worked in a theatre bar where everybody, but everybody would pass through and hang out. And, uh, you know, and of course, I was just the kind of cute daft girl behind the bar. But I met absolutely everyone who I'd still see from time to time. And now they're all kind of run big theatres and stuff like that. And um, yeah, it was just it was just great. I didn't really think about career, you know, and I kind of kick around all summer. I'd work three jobs doing the festival and stuff because everything runs all night. And then I'd kind of bump into my friends again as we went back and somebody would be like, yes, I spent the summer interning for Ernest and Young. And you'd be like, oh, that sounds nice. You know? <laughs> and then, of course, they all came out and got like these massive jobs. I was like, oh, that's what you were doing. <laughs> yeah, that is spoken like a true artist. Like, oh, shit, you can make money doing things? That's, uh, I mean, that's who knew? <laughs> And then I wanted to, I'd done some uh, work experience in the uh, local paper before I'd gone to university and I had loved it so much that I had refused to leave. And so I was meant to be there for a week and I just sat there all summer. Just kept showing anything. up. Just kept showing up. I kept showing up and other people did not show up. And they, they, that was, a, in retrospect, possibly the most single valuable lesson anyone taught me about anything. <laughs> so I'd be there, no one else would be there. And they'd go, do you want to go and cover a flower show which is the most dull thing because if you misspell somebody's name you get letters and, and so on and yeah oh, and, yeah yeah and i'd be like yeah all right i don't care yeah i'll go and take down i'll go and sit in criminal court or whatever and so that was incredibly useful and then i went along to the kind of student newspaper thinking well i could probably write and, and they were all like really super snotty <laughs> quite <laughs> scary english people with uh, terribly posh voices so i didn't really do that but i did kind of kick around on the fringes of so was that more of the is would you say that like that was more of the college experience for you like the sort of finding this big community finding this art stuff finding the writing stuff like oh sure there was a student theater we used to put on get this for student theater bear in mind which is only in term 30 weeks a year we put on 52 productions a year Oh, they, they just used to, they ran a new show every Wednesday. They ran a new show Tuesday to Friday, Tuesday to Saturday every fortnight in an evening. And then they'd run a lunchtime every Wednesday. They'd run an improv on a Friday and then they'd run a bunch. It's the busiest student festival uh, theatre in the world. And it's entirely yeah. self-run. The building is run by students. The accounting is run by students. Everything's run by students. That is, was, that's quite all-consuming thing. Yeah. Do. And that was an absolute last in it as well. I mean, that sounds amazing. I need to, why it's absolutely, the Bedlam Theatre is famous and absolutely amazing. Um, it is why I will probably have to run my undergraduate degree again at some point. Yeah. <laughs> Except for that, like, I think for people doing creative endeavors, that kind of thing is super important, particularly at the beginning. 
when oh, yeah. you're just sort of like in a cauldron of creativity and nobody knows what the fuck they're doing, mm-hmm. but you're just doing it at a hundred miles an hour. Oh yeah, it doesn't matter. They were just like, oh, okay, well, do you want to write a play and we'll put it on? Your budget was 10 pounds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, and for that, I think you had to, I think everyone got soup and a bread roll as well that bought a ticket. So, but then everyone would show up because you didn't know what people were going to do. Yeah. Okay, here's an hour, off you go. Everyone wants to be in the blaze. And um, yeah, that was pretty fun too. Well, I mean- Although I'm, I'm a terrible playwright. Yeah, know. well, I mean, I think, we talk about this on the show all the time, like people that can write across different medium, play, screenwriting, fiction, not, they, they impress the shit out of me. I can do one thing. I can do nonfiction. Everything else I'm junk at. I don't, I'm not, I'm trying to think of it. The, the novel is a long form exploration of people's consciousness and the screenplay as a short form, entirely visual medium that you ought to be able to understand even if you don't speak the language that it's been spoken in i don't know how people can be super good at both of those things they're completely opposite things yeah and i will say some of the best novelists that i've interviewed came out of the film and tv world because they know how to write scenes and they know how constraints work Mm -hmm. and so they have two of the biggest things that writers struggle with at the beginning which is how do you write a scene and how do you constrain because screenwriting they'll say um, I interviewed a guy who wrote The Jerk, which is Steve Martin's film. And he was, he's, a, and he oh, wrote, wonderful film. his first novel was great. And I'm like, I hate you. Like you just <laughs> decided to write a novel and wrote this amazing novel. And he's like, well, in a procedural, at minute seven, this yeah. happens. In minute 12, yeah, this happens. That, and, actually, I, I think you're right for genre. I can see how it could work for crime. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I like, see how it could work now. but they would say if you're doing a romance or a romantic comedy that they would watch those films figure out what the beats are yeah Yeah. and then what's the constraint what's the turn where do these things come whereas novelists and people that write we don't get that training right yes (laughs) that comes later after you're like shit i need to figure out what a beat is yeah oh that is interesting yeah i never thought of it like that yes i suppose you're right so maybe it's easier coming one way but going the other way is different I never thought, I wish I could say that was my knowledge. That was a bunch of screenwriters telling me like, no, 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 every novelist should have a screenwriting degree. And I'm like, well, shit, that should be in the MFA program, guys. (laughs) So as you're doing all of this stuff, as you're, you know, in the theater and you're, you're younger than everybody. So that's probably, probably hard at first, but then it becomes a benefit because you probably gain some confidence and, you know, for people around your age. a little time on my side it is quite funny though because now every time I, I was I, I, I'm a famous party thrower and every time I have a big birthday I always have massive and it freaks everyone out because I'm always because it's I'm always the last so if I'm getting old it means everyone else yeah. is really really old <laughs> so as you go through that cauldron like at what point do you start saying like well, here's what I want to do, because at some point you're going to finish school and you're going to need to get you're going to need to you know be able to afford food yeah, I mean, the thing is, also back then, listen to us old fogies, those halcyon days of back then, I did what everyone else did. I went, I moved to London and I could afford to rent a perfectly nice apartment uh, and make, and get a job. I got a graduate job working for the National Health Service in admin, which I also sucked mightily. And I made enough money from that job and that job, it paid £25,000 a year in 1993. Yeah. That was enough for me to buy a really nice one-bedroom garden apartment in central London. I mean, it's disgusting. Now, you know, that that, that was how it was then. You yeah. 
could do it. Young people could go get a job, get a place and look around. And you were then you were in London, you were in one of the world's great cities, full of comedies, clubs, full of actors, full of people writing and, and having a go. And, and that being around. And this is why I feel terrible for kids now who can't afford to live in places because it was just being around it. I had a friend from the Edinburgh Festival, an amazing, he's a wonderful wordsmith and actor called Ben Moore. Just he was just in that brilliant chess thing. And um, it was never a question to him. He's like, it's all right. Oh, I'll work in a bar if I have to, but I'm gonna go for an audition. And hey, yeah. do you want to go and see a movie at lunchtime on Tuesday? I was like, well, no, I can't. I work in an office, I get 45 <laughs> minutes. And then um, that, but that sense of well, why why not? you know, give it a yeah. shot, was completely, uh, kind of, it's kind of mindset, you know, why not you, why wouldn't it be, why not, and that's a really hard thing to get across, because, you know, for, particularly for people from small towns, there was never, I never had the slightest sense, I knew that I could write in a way that other people understood or liked, and I knew that I loved to read, but the idea of being a novelist, you might as well have said, be a gymnast or a pop yeah. star, planet some other people, you know? Yeah. And so being able to go down to London then and get a job and um, work and kick about the city and see people, which is now has been slammed in the face of every capital city in the world, really, unless your parents are very, very wealthy. And also, if your parents are very, very wealthy, how are you going to be the scrappy, hungry person anyway? Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. doesn't, it doesn't even matter to you. Your parents are going to die and leave you nine houses. Whereas yeah. everyone I met as well was in such a rush such a such a rush and it was so interesting so you do an open mic night and then you come back two months later and the guy who'd been absolutely sucky then had done a hundred gigs and he was brilliant you know and yeah just everybody was like did you do this did you do this did you do this and that you know and you, the bbc still does in fact hold open writing sessions and open castings and you go and you know all the faces they're all all men oh my god bad all men and you'd all be eyeing each other up and and you know and just oh what are you doing right oh i heard so and so an agent it was so fun and you just bounce through you crash anybody's party yeah we'd all come to edinburgh and we'd crash with whatever famous comedians or writers we could find and we just sidle up to their tables and of course we were super cute so that was easy and um yeah it was an absolute it was an absolute blast we had so much fun really in um yeah, well, everyone has fun in their twenties, don't they? But it was. I had. A that's not true. Of- I don't think that's true. Yeah. I don't think everybody does. I think there's. I mean, this is a broad stroke, but like I came out of the zine world, like in that punk rock. Like mm-hmm. you wrote, like we would make our own newspaper, like all that yeah. kind of stuff. Like, and I would go to New York or I'd cover a music festival in Seattle and just meet somebody who also did a zine, and I'd end up sleeping on their couch. Like, yeah, you're in that. I traveled all over for no money, for no yeah. money. Right. Like, and you just meet people. And then if people showed up in your town, I've told my girlfriend, there's a chance at 50, somebody's going to just come and knock on my door and I'll be like, yeah, oh God, I haven't seen you in 20 years. Come on in. Like, yeah, this is a person that I ran around with on this circuit. And that's where I learned to write. And that's when I learned what being a writer was. And that was when I learned. I don't even know if it's learned, but like you're in the, I always call it a cauldron. It's just, you can't help but create because you're around people with the energy to make things. That's right. And there was no, I mean, there was a judgment about who did it well and who didn't, but like everybody was invited in to do it. It wasn't like, no, you can't come and do this. Like there was hierarchies, but 
I don't know how to describe it. Like it was just like this artistic fucking Shangri-La. <laughs> if you were, I think if you were, if you were relatively fearless, because you're quite ignorant at that age. Yeah. And also you don't have a lot to lose. Not really. Something will show up, you know, it's, yeah. it's an optimistic time. If that's the case, then the world's your oyster because you don't, you know, do you want to try to have a go at doing this? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's why I think... That's why I think not having money and being from a small place is helpful because I've told people, I don't, you may have the same thing. I didn't have a plan B. There's not another, I didn't have other talents. I had this. <laughs> so, I didn't have any other talents, but I, I, I could always work. I was going to get a job, you know. I didn't yeah, I was going to. Being in an office, that I, would, I don't think I would have survived in an office. Yeah, I just, well, I was in an office for two and a half years. I used to cry like a lot. And it, it was far more, just quietly in the toilet. And then um, it was far, it, it was far longer than the amount of time I worked in an office before I stopped waking up every Monday morning with the biggest sense of rush of joy. Yeah. But it cannot dissimilar to when I kind of left and didn't have to go to mass anymore. It took me a while to kick the habit, but then I was just like, oh, I'm not gonna go. And it, but the, the waking up on the Mondays and just been like, yeah, this is your day. Yeah, <sighs> yeah. I still dream about like, I got the house now and I'm like, oh man, I could sell the house and get a small apartment bartend and just yeah. write and do the, like, be right. you know, I like the backyard and I like my garden. So I'm like, ah, this is what happens. This is the trap. <laughs> <laughs> the garden oh, is the trap. The trap. Yes. Yes. Well, that, that will, that will happen. Oh my God. Yeah. The, the crap I would put up with it. I really used to run like night buses through the night in London. They used to run them once every hour. And I remember me and my bestie stand and we left this kind of ridiculous underground weird bondage nightclub thing one night at like four o'clock in the morning. And we missed it by a minute. Oh. And we were like, oh, okay, we're just going to stand in this corner for 59 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> there was no there was literally nothing else you were going to do except just count how many you know cigarettes you had left and just stand about and you you, you didn't give a toss you know yeah did you smoke then because that sounds like oh we'll just smoke some cigarettes for the next hour everybody smoked then yeah yeah, yeah. like waiting an hour is great yeah fresh air and a cigarette <laughs> i can be found very occasionally still at parties sneaking out the back I mean, it makes me feel young yeah, yeah. well because also because my children as well like the way they do well obviously my husband doesn't like it it's disgusting I gave up when I was 29 I, I, I do know it's woke but um children right. are kind of taught now in school that if someone has a cigarette they will literally be dead 15 minutes after that yeah. moment so they're so terrified of it yeah. so I do it occasionally I mean I think that's like I, again I feel like that's the artist thing like ah I don't even want the cigarette I want the feeling of the cigarette that I had when I was 27 that's what I miss <laughs> I you know I was walking out the other day and it was a really beautiful day and Edinburgh as you know is a spectacularly beautiful city and it was just full of kind of people having a lovely time and I had the dogs and I walked out and I actually found myself having the thought oh what a lovely day it is to be young I'm 51 next month. I'm not, like, there's no stretch of the imagination by which I could include myself. But of course, you're always on the inside looking out. But it yeah. was such a funny thought to have. Oh, this is great. It's like, hang on, I've got four teenagers now. <laughs> yeah. So you're going through all that stuff. And like, it's in the mid 90s, whatever. Your first book 
Like what possesses you to be, to say, well, I want to write a book now. Had that been a thing you wanted to do? Consciously, I did. It didn't. No, it didn't occur to me that I would do that. Then I had there was a woman that worked for us who was also from Scotland, and she was in. Oh, she got a really nasty cancer, and she just got stuck in hospital. And I was in charge just because of what I did. I had to deal with her medical pay or sick pay and all our all the admin for that. And so I'd have to write to her, and then she'd write back because she was so bored. And then the letters got longer, and of course I could just sit there and write about my ridiculous life as then was kicking about on the fringes of the comedy circuit and stuff. And then she just went, and then and then Bridget Jones's diary came out, and that was a massive deal. It, it wasn't a book then; it was a newspaper column, and everyone was obsessed by it. It was the first time we'd really seen women our age being hilarious and being daft, rather than being kind of Jackie Collins, beautiful you know kind of starlets and stuff like that it was absolutely a complete and utter cult it was crazy and then a couple of other books started to appear and I just remember Fiona saying well honestly I don't see the difference between those books and your funny letters to me I don't see why you couldn't do that and sometimes that's it that's all it takes it's like Mm -hmm. why not and so I put something together I wrote I, I went to the library and it said you had to there was something called the Writers and Artists Yearbook, which had all the publishers in it, and something called Agents, which I hadn't heard. Of. And you had to write three chapters, I think, in a synopsis, and you'd send them off. And of yep. course, this is pre-email, so I kept <laughs> getting into trouble by, you know, photocopying them and stuff like that. And I picked an agent who agented a book that I had quite liked in a very similar genre, similar kind of thing. And I wrote the three chapters and I thought, well, I'm not going to write the rest because, you know, God knows what will happen. And that seems like it'll be quite hard. And I didn't write a synopsis because I didn't know what that was. I still don't write a synopsis because they're worse, actually worse than writing a whole book. Um, so I sent off three chapters and the first agent got back to me and she said, OK, I want to be in touch with you. When you go, oh, and also you were meant to send them to one agent at that time. That was that yeah. was what I remember. That you meant to send them to an agent, wait for them to come back to you, and then send them to another agent. I was yeah. like, oh shit! So I photocopied as much as I could after hours, and just kind of rapid fire sent it to three different agents. And one of them came back and said, "I really like it, but my list is full." And two of them came back and asked to see Australian. So having bummed about on the fringes of stuff, you know, I'd bummed about in the fringes of comedy I tried that I wasn't very good at it I tried writing jokes for tv I wasn't very good so having bummed around bummed around um kind of knocking at doors as one does the doors to this opened right away they just went yeah you, you know we we're on the lookout as it happened we're on the lookout for young sassy girl in London novels you appear to have one and I was like well I have three chapters of one give me a minute right. <laughs> and they sold it I finally picked um they're just the first agent who'd written back to me and also the other agent who'd said yes was pat kavanagh the late pat kavanagh who was julian barnes's wife and i was slightly terrified of that it's very highfalutin kind of thing which i'm not at all um and yeah she sent out ali sent it out on spec on the friday and i remember this they had 10 days it went out on friday and they had 10 days come back so the week on the Monday so I had the weekend and then Tuesday morning I was coming in I was late I was always late because I hated my job and wasn't very good at it and uh, the phone was ringing in my office 
and like most people knew that I <laughs> turned up to work late. Oh my god, the nineties, how lazy were. <laughs> and um, but I, but it was my phone, and I knew. So that it had gone out on the Friday, and she was calling me on the Tuesday with the office, and I knew it was her, and I knew it was going to change my life. I knew, and I remember walking down that corridor quite slowly, just waiting and going for the phone, and knowing that this was it. I'd just be made redundant as well because I've shared what I did. And my poor mother, of course, the, I was the, all her hopes and dreams were poured into me and I, I had no idea what I was doing next. And I picked up the phone and they, I think the opening offer was 130,000 sterling for two, which would be considered a very good offer nowadays. Uh, was an unbelievable offer. Back wow. Then. I think it was one of the highest, it was one of the highest deals for a debut that had ever been done in that's years. crazy at that, at that point yeah it was mental yeah yeah it, i know it was and i was like oh, okay lovely thanks i yeah. have no idea how hard it is to get to publishing <laughs> yeah i mean the fact that you're like i sent it the three agents and they all three responded like right now writers are like jumping off a building like what i know do you know what it was luck and timing and also you know i'd, I'd done it you know everything else wasn't going particularly uh my way but that the timing of that just as the whole Bridget Jones thing went from cult to huge yeah. Marion Keys kind of showed up and every single publisher was like okay get me one of those and I kind of went oh yeah okay hi anyway I was just passing and uh, you know I work in comedy and they were like okay yeah here's um, the thing so. but I'm gonna just push back and I do this to every writer because it wasn't just luck and timing like there's also skill and all the things that you did to lead to that point to be able to write that way is a skill so yes, luck and timing play a part of it, but also having the ability to do the thing is a big part of that. Well, yeah, but lots of people can do the thing, Brad. The biggest thing I would say, my biggest achievement isn't that, although it was kind of amazing at the time yeah. and drove my mother absolutely, she was furious. I mean, like half, mostly pleased, but like yeah. 10% really annoyed. Um, uh, is, is managing to, that was 1998, 1999, to still be doing it is actually the yeah. that's where that's where the real just keep showing up just mm -hmm. keep looking at your market just keep you know that the, there's lots of flashy debuts that come and they go and yeah. actually this sustainability has been really you know that's been the kind of graft you know yeah so, yeah first time around luck will get it but i think book 39 yeah. <laughs> a certain insane amount of kind of you know cleaving to the yeah <laughs> I mean, we talk about, we talk all the time on the show. I mean, I've been doing this professionally for a long time. Like the, the business of writing is a skill, right? Oh. Like the, the, not the, not, and I'm not talking about the writing. I mean, the business of it. Like once you have that first one, your career then sort of gets determined by how well you can do two and three, right? Like you have to continue to do it. And for some folks, small and independent presses are really good for them. And like, they can write what they want and, you know, they can have their stories and their voice and that's a skill. But the people that I know that do it in houses and like do it, like that's a skill too. That's also a skill I do not possess, but it's one I'm in awe of because it, it's just, that's really hard. And like, it's the creativity and the business side of things together into making art that's accessible and, readable and entertaining for people like that's hard to do well do you know i was i um after that after i started getting published i was asked uh the guardian the newspaper asked me to write about the experience of, of, of being you know having a big publishing deal when i was relatively young 
and I wrote a piece about it which got a lot of attention um, I guess these days you'd say going viral but that was very much those days uh, so I guess they got like five letters or something and um, so they kept asking me to do stuff and then freelance uh, the magazines and stuff would ask me to do stuff and um, I would I did quite a lot of travel journalism and I was in Thailand once uh, doing a travel piece and I was in the airport and there was no there was I was looking at the books and there was almost no fiction in English at all and what they did have was they had Stephen King they had John Grisham and they had I think uh, Sophie Kinsella I think it would have been and I looked at that and I've been, I think I just turned in my third book, which is kind of slightly odd fantasy tinged comedy. And they'd kind of been kind of polite, but worried. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember looking at the um, books and thinking, well, what th those books, they are written. If you like a Stephen King book, you're going to like this one. Yeah. You know, you're going to like the next one. If you like legal thrillers set in the south you're going to like the next one and i thought oh well that's if you want to keep working and doing nothing else which is exactly what i wanted to do yeah you need to hit your groove and if you want to stumble well out of your groove which sometimes i do i write sci-fi on the side well you do that on the side you yeah. do that on your own time you know but that's if what i mean like do, yeah. understanding that and being able to do it is a skill like that is a well-honed skill that is to be able to have your voice and do all that stuff is just a thing I'm have been eternally in awe of most of my life as a writer, as a professional writer, because, um, you know, normal people don't understand that, but writers, I think writers are like, shit, man, that's, that's hard to do. That's hard to do. If it was easy, we'd all be doing it. Right. <laughs> I, I, wrote, I taught a course in rom-com writing for Curtis Brown. And I was saying, you know, what you have to realize is that, in genre it's not a book you know if you write one book and publish it that is fantastic yeah actually what you really want is every mother's day for there to be a new book by you every yeah. se second christmas i will have a christmas you know the, the a sentiment of consistency from people that like reading you mm -hmm. and want to have a kind of story they know exactly what they're in the mood for and that's what they want and i'm the same i mean i read incredibly broadly like all libraries are killed yeah because <laughs> we had to read what was there so you know like non-fiction books about amphibians and stuff yeah i think i've actually interviewed a couple rom-com writers who took the curtis brown course it may have been yours oh. um, yeah it's really interesting because I've told folks the two things that I started reading in the pandemic were rom-coms and procedurals. Like those were not, uh, yeah. like I read some, but not as now during the pandemic, I'm like, oh shit, give me a funny rom-com or a yeah. Yeah. murder mystery that I know oh, is yeah. going to end with them catching I the bad guy. Yeah, no, I did. I reread a lot of children's literature. Yeah. You, know, you just had to take your comfort where you could find it. I started rebuying mm. all the Nancy Drew books. I have Yay! like 20 Nancy Drew books back there. I'm like, oh, God, the staircase. Single one. Yeah. Hardy by sometimes Nancy forever. Yeah, I got them. I, I had them both as kids. So I'm like, I got the original yellow books. I will only buy the original one. So I've been looking at like <laughs> eBay and garage sales. <laughs> yes, there's billions of them out there somewhere. Oh, so yeah. good. So I the did. latest, the latest book just came out, right? The uh, an island wedding that came out in like what June, just yeah, 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 or in midsummer, I would say, yeah. Um, and then do so when you're doing this writing, do you have multiple books like 
in process or are you like finish this project immediately start on the next one like at this point you've been doing it long enough how does it work uh, only if i'm doing doctor who um sometimes if i've got a doctor who deadline which i don't have this year then i will be working on one thing in the morning and then switching channels to the good doctor in the afternoon uh but no otherwise i tend to stick or actually i write a kind of boarding school set for young adults and so sometimes I have to go a bit, but actually it's not, it seems like I'm incredibly prolific, prolific. That is not a word I can ever say. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I, two and a half thousand words a day, it's a fairly steady slog, 10,000 words a week, you know, eight weeks will get your first draft. It's fairly, it's, you know, it's fairly, it's fairly steady, really. Yeah. I just march along. And then some books are easy. I wrote a book about Edinburgh, Oh, uh, the year before last, December was very snowy at Christmas time, which is not terribly usual for us that time of year. And it was so beautiful and it was all locked down. So it was completely empty and it was magical. And so I wrote a book about a bookshop at Christmas, which was so easy to write. And then I've just finished a book about a pilot, which has been hell on wheels, literally, absolutely head bangingly horrible. So it doesn't, some books are easy, some books are hard, some books are quick, some books need to be hit severely over the head with a pilot hat <laughs> i've got i have lovely pilots that help me out on it but i'm so dense i think they've asked to have their names take removed like they don't even want to be the acknowledgement just because my understanding of aerodynamics is so terrible <laughs> <laughs> literally uh, they'd, they'd explained it to me about a million times they still had to one of went through the manuscript he's like jen pilots can't stay behind them <laughs> they've got wind mirrors and um it's been horrible that's funny well i appreciate you spending an hour with us uh on my little ridiculous show like it's been very lovely to meet you you are delightful and charming and fantastic oh really enjoyed it thank you i just love getting to know people and finding out their stories and all of that stuff and i'm always delighted when people like you give me an hour well i really enjoyed it and actually do you know what i was thinking this because they're not so normally in depth on how you're growing up so actually it's going to be very lovely hopefully for my children to have it one of these days i told you delightful absolutely delightful that was jenny colgan her book an island wedding is out right now and i'm telling you man like there is the last few years, I have discovered a joy and joy that I did not know existed in the world. And there is nothing I like more than talking to authors, one, that are joyful. And I think it's entertaining for everybody. Um, not that you have to be, but that is just, you get that energy going and suddenly there's just like lightning going back and forth. But also people that can dig in and tell stories like that that sort of have that happiness to them uh, is a skill, man. And it's one that I'm glad people have. And I'm glad that I've discovered it. And I hope you will too. Uh, before we get out of here, a couple of reminders. If you like what you heard, leave us a review. Apple Podcasts over at the Writer's Jam Facebook page. Tell your friends about us. I don't care what order. Do them both. We are part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. It's a whole shitload of shows. We got 12. And speaking of nice, Molly and Nicole have built the nicest podcast corner on the internet. It's just a bunch of really cool people that are doing um, shows that are nice, man. 
including the flagship Mother May I Sleep With podcast with host and our solid listen podcast queen, Molly MacLear. Don't forget, we got those three programs, the jam, after party, and jam sessions. You can get them all right here on the channel you're listening to now. All you got to do is get yourself subscribed. You don't even have to worry about what the shows are. They will just show up in your ear holes. And remember, you can always catch us on Twitter and Instagram at The Writer's Jam. Until the next time, we'll see you around the internet. Nowadays, trends and news cycles change faster than we can blink. But there are some things that withstand the test of time. And if you're looking for a connection to something timeless, and maybe also a glimpse of life at a slower pace, I believe everyone can relate to the very human experiences explored in Jane Austen's novels. And that's where I come in. My name is Alison Larkin. I'm a writer, comedian, and narrator and host of The Jane Austen Podcast with Alison Larkin. I spent a lot of my childhood in the part of England where Jane Austen lived and wrote, and now that I live in the States, nothing gives me a sense of homecoming quite like narrating her books. On this show, you'll listen to award-winning narration. I'll give myself a pat on the back for that as well as conversations with actors, writers and other fascinating people who all share a passionate love for Jane Austen. So please, join me as we embark on a wonderful journey through Jane Austen's work. Be sure to listen and subscribe to The Jane Austen Podcast with Alison Larkin wherever you get your podcasts.